This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 3. We'll be running through verses 20 through 35. When you get it, go ahead and stand and we'll read and kick this one off. roll. Verse 20. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but it's coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men. Whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brother are outside seeking you. And he answered, Who are my mother and my brother? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brother. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that is your purpose to allow us to to read these scriptures, to hear your word for the purpose of your work inside of us, for the purpose of this work of salvation, Lord. That I ask that you are planted deep down inside of our hearts, Lord, and allow it to to take root, Lord, that you will prep our hearts to receive your word, Lord, and that you will keep my heart a slave to you, Holy Spirit, as we dive into these texts. We give you all the honor, we give you all the glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Awesome. So I get the opportunity to continue on our trek through the book of Mark. So I get to a section of scripture, and there's several different sections that are just like this, where people had dubbed these Markine sandwiches. Mark because it's Mark, but sandwiches because of this. What Mark, it's about his literary style, how he writes his letters. So in the midst of how he writes his letters, what he'll do oftentimes is he'll start this story off, and then in the middle of the story, put something really meaty in the middle of the story, and then get back to the story. But the thing is that sometimes people see the meaty part and just focus on the meaty part and forget about the other part that was outside of it. So the meat 
gives context to the bread. If you think about a sandwich, you know, when a good sandwich has sauce all over the bread and everything, you know. So keep this in mind. The meat gives context to the bread. We're about to build a sandwich right here, and then we're going to take a bite. Okay? All right, all right, all right. So let's start with the first, first bread. I like to put the bread on the bottom and then start with the cheese. Well, all right. Here go the first layer, the first layer of bread. It's going to be verses 20 and 21. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. So we start off, and we see two characters in this narrative. You see his family, and you see the crowd. See, the crowd in and of himself is a character in and of himself. I'm just reading through the Gospels, and I'm reading through all these, and the crowd is always there. Every time when Jesus is going from, from place to place, every time when something is happening, this crowd is always there. The crowd is a character in this narrative in and of itself. Now, and he, he played this constant role in the narrative, but the crowd isn't always um, good, right? So we don't want to get caught up in the crowds and stuff. The road is narrow and wide. We don't want to get caught up in the crowds all the times, but God still uses the crowd to do what he's doing. But the thing here with the crowd is that they were, most, they, they were mostly there for what, for what Jesus could do, not for who he was. Most of the crowd heard about this guy that's, that's healing people, this guy that's, that's casting out demons, and, you know, you heard what? Somebody's healing people? And most of the crowd is there for that, and they are intrigued about what he's doing, but not so much caught up in who he is. Thus, they were more concerned about what he could do for them in the here and the now than who he was to them here now and throughout eternity. So that's this crowd. You gotta, this crowd is fickle. They was easily persuaded. There's good times and there's bad times with this crowd. There's times when Jesus, like right now he says he's coming back. Last week Aaron was talking about how Jesus was concerned of being crushed by the crowd, right? Here they, now he's back in the Capernaum and, and the crowd is, is, is bombarding them so much that there's no even room to, to eat. But then later on, we hear this is the same crowd that, okay, is going to be crucified too, right? So the crowd plays a unique role. But the other group of people that we see here is the family. There's something interesting about looking at the family. Here's one thing that you constantly don't notice with the family. Normally, when Jesus is doing what he's doing and going through what he's going through, the family is never there. They're always on the outside of what's going on with Jesus. See, they hear through the grapevine that Jesus is back in town. You know, the disciples are the ones that are there with them. The crowds are there with them. But the, the family is at home making sandwiches. And they're like, what? Jesus is back? And then they hear about what's going on. And I think it's, it was interesting that his family is hardly ever there when these miracles are going on, when all these things are going on, when Jesus is going through and doing what he's doing. I think one of the things that play a big role is this. When you grow up with people inside of a family, 
it's often hard for them to see you for who God has made you to be right here, right now, because they know everything else, too. They've seen you growing up as you was growing up. So it's hard for them to look at you and just see you through the lenses of who God has made you to be right here and right now. And sometimes it's hard for us to see others like that. You see your sister, but God has done a tremendous work inside your sister, but you know your sister or you know your brother. And those things that you know about them also are what you see too at the exact same time. So a lot of times we don't take people seriously as we should and see them through the lenses that God is looking at them, how God has formed and made them to be right here, right now, and miss that. So you could imagine Jesus' family, man, we grew up with him for like 30-something years. You know, we don't need to be walking up and down the place with him all the time. But yet still at the same time, they was genuinely concerned about him. The crowds wasn't always concerned about Jesus' person. They was more concerned about what he can do for them. That's why it was easy to turn around, oh, they're crucifying him? Yeah, crucify him, right? But his family, they were genuinely concerned about them. They've grown up with Jesus all this time, but then when Jesus starts his earthly ministry, he takes this sharp turn, and he starts doing a whole bunch of things on a level that they've never seen him doing these things before, and for them, Jesus' actions seem a little bizarre, and oftentimes dangerous. There's been other people that, that have risen up through the ranks where people started following them and people started trying to hear what they were saying, and all those people ended up dead and crucified. So they're concerned, good concerned about Jesus, his actions, and they come together on this plan, sort of like a family intervention type of deal. They make up their minds, okay. We're going to go down to where he's at, and we're going to seize him. I mean, they use that word seize for like when the Roman soldiers come in and seize people and stuff. So this means that their plan was we're going to go, and we're going to find our family member, and we're going to take him by force if we have to because he's wilding out. All right? And they had this plan, and sometimes we can do that. We just turn around, and we just make up this plan that's rooted in the flesh. That's it. Flesh and logic. This is what makes sense for us to do. We're just going to do it. There's no spirit involved. No following of God involved. Just something got to be done. Do something. And they make up their mind. Family intervention. We're going to go down there and take them. So the family decides the only logical conclusion was he was out of his mind, then leaves their home and goes to retrieve them. So this is the, the first layer of bread. This is the setting that we, that we start in over here. We have the crowd who treats him like a celebrity that's out for attention. Then you have the family who treats him like one whose actions are to be attributed to mental instability. Out of the way, you're missing the point here. They're not catching what's really going on here. That's the, the bottom bread. Now let's get into the, the meat. Verses 22 through 27. I'm going to read them and then dive in. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. 
And he calls them to him, and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house would not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against Satan and is divided, he cannot stand. But it's coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. So Jesus is being bombarded by the crowds. His family thinks he's crazy, and the scribes have come to the conclusion he's possessed by Satan. And then Jesus takes the time to even entertain their comments with logic. Like, seriously, think about this. You're trying to say that Satan is giving me the power to cast Satan out. That doesn't even make sense. He takes the time to to open this up like, this is what you're saying here. Don't you realize if that was a deal, it would be confusion and Satan's own kingdom would just fall? Then he explained that his ability to cast out demons didn't prove that he was in league with Satan, but instead that he had power over Satan. He had to be able to bind the strong man in order to plunder his house. This is what he's saying with him. He says, when he's talking about binding up the strong man, he, Satan is the strong man that he's talking about. And he's showing that in order for me to step inside Satan's kingdom and do whatever I want, I must have authority over Satan to bind him up so that he can't interfere. And they're missing that. So he's saying the strong man is bounded up. What you see me is walking inside Satan's kingdom and just owning things. He takes his time. He explains that to them. And then he dives into the heart of what's really going on. Verses 28 through 30. Now think about this. He goes through. He's, he's, he's talking to them about this. He's explaining to them how everything that you're saying doesn't even make sense. There's no logic to it. Then he says, truly, I say to you, all things will be forgiven the children of men, and whatever blasphemy they utter, whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now this word truly is, 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 is like saying amen, right? So Jesus starts off with amen in himself before he even starts the conversation and stuff. He's like, what I'm about to say is an amen moment. Then he starts diving in, right? But here's the deal here. I, I used to have the, the strongest struggles with this scripture right here because of the type of life that I've come from. Um, just being in the nation of Islam and, and really um, not liking Christians, really just thinking Christians was just lost and just ignorant and blind. And, and I was the guy that liked to, to, to challenge Christians and theology and things like that. And so I remember there was this one time where this 
this girl was trying to witness to me and a friend of mine by the name of Bashan. Both of us was um, in Islam. And she was like, well, don't you ever want to see Jesus? And Bashan laughingly turns and says, no, because if I do, I might punch him in his face. And we laughed it off at that time, but I think about it now. I'm like, man, this is chills through me that that was the type of thing that we said in laughing. So when I talk to people about the gospel, when I share the truths with them, to me it's a big deal to, to remind them and assure them that no matter how crazy your life was, there's always going to be forgiveness. What, you murdered somebody before? God can forgive you. What, you did this? God can forgive you. So it always meant something to be able to remind people that, that there is forgiveness for that. But then I come to a text that says, except this, an unforgivable sin. Like, what? So I would just stay away from that text, you know, unforgivable sin, really deep down on the inside, I don't even know if I was guilty of doing it. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says that all sins are forgivable. Then he turned around and says, even if you blaspheme me, and any other kind of blasphemy, which means me blaspheming the Father, any other kind of blasphemy, all of them will be forgiven except this one. Blasphemy of the Spirit. I was talking to a, a good friend of mine about preaching this text, and he asked me a question that I felt was phenomenal. He says, well, why is it that out of the, the member of the Trinity, Godhead, there's two that you could be forgiven of blasphemy, but specifically that one you can't? Why is it that you can be forgiven of blaspheming Jesus or even the Father, but you can't be forgiven of blaspheming the Holy Spirit? What's the difference here? And I said, I need to find that out. That's important, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, to understand why this sin is not forgiven, we have to understand the nature and the heart of the sin and the implications. So, what exactly is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Let me start with what it's not. There's a lot of things that people think, and this is a text that there's a lot of confusion on too and stuff. What exactly is blasphemy Holy Spirit? Again, let me start with what it's not. The eternal sin is not mere unbelief, not just unbelief in and of itself. If that's the case, then someone that didn't believe in the gospel and stuff at that particular time and moment will be guilty of the unforgivable sin and never will be forgiven. Now, you got to understand this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, this unforgivable sin, is a type of sin where the Holy Spirit, now you would never get conviction or anything else, right? So it can't be just mere unbelief because then people wouldn't end up getting saved. And it's not any specific other sin that's mentioned somewhere along the line, like murder or some people think suicide. It's not even that. 
You know, it's not that specifically. It's not denying Christ. Peter denies him three times. Christ resurrected and forgives him and puts him up. So it's not that. It's not using God's name in vain. Not saying that that's cool, but that's not what it is. And it's not grieving or quenching the Spirit of God. Even the Spirit of God lives inside of us as Christians. But understand this, every single sin that we commit, even ones that we don't think are big-time sins and we think is little sins, but every sin that we commit grieves the Spirit of God. He's always like, man, that's jacked up. What's up? What you doing? So that's not it. The unforgivable sin is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which involves the knowledgeable, willful, and continued rebellion against the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's what it is. You see, these scribes had seen the obvious fruits of the Spirit, but were rejecting it. They've never, ever, ever seen somebody that was healing people with their mere words. They've never seen that before. They've never ever seen someone, they've never seen an unclean spirit as they, they would name it. They've never seen a demon get cast out before. These are obvious things that were obvious works of God, but they're coming and they're seeing it. Yeah, that's the devil. No, you're fronting. You know what's really going on. The true issues of the heart, that's where it's really at. They don't want to believe nor accept it, so they reject it despite the many miraculous displays of validity that they have witnessed or been a part of personally. I like reading and, and, and listening to Robbie Zacharias, and he has a quote on this particular topic, so if you guys can throw the quote up on the screen. Otherwise, I'm going to read this quote. It's from Ravi Zacharias from his book, Jesus Among Other Gods. And he's talking about blasphemy of the Spirit. He says, this is what he says is, a total rejection of God has less to do with a lack of evidence than it does the suppression of it. The Pharisees always demanded a sign from Jesus, even after immediately witnessing a miracle. But Jesus understood their game. They did not seek a sign. They did not need any more evidence. They simply did not want to believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be. They didn't care about evidence. They only cared about their own industry, even at the cost of truth. Here's another quote, and I got a few of them, from John Calvin, right? So John Calvin writes this. It's a sin against the Holy Spirit for a person that has been impacted by the power of divine truth to such a point that he cannot plead ignorance to yet deliberately resist, and that merely for the sake of resistance. This is the heart behind blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, where it really comes from. It made me think about Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, so I'm going to one there for a second. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. You don't have to go there unless you want to. 
but I'm going to read it anyhow. Okay. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened to have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So before I dive into that, here's something that I want us to understand. Even reading that, genuine believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit who keeps them. So they are dwelt by the Holy Spirit and then kept by the Holy Spirit. Now, non-believers can taste and share in the works of the Spirit by being around the church, witnessing the work of the Spirit, and yet still totally reject them. Everyone that sees or experiences the miraculous works of the Spirit has had light shown on them. They have tasted and shared in the works of the Spirit. A non-believer can merely taste and share, but a believer is indwelt. The problem is when we think of the miraculous works of the Spirit, most of us only think of healings and casting out of demons and forget that just to see someone's eyes open to the truth is a greater miracle in and of itself. For someone to actually believe that Jesus died, hung on the cross, died, and rose again is a greater miracle in and of itself than the healing and the casting out of a demon. I think about my fam back in New York. I was the first person in my family to, to, to give this, my, myself to God, to, to, to submit to him. And, and they, they knew the type of life I was. I used to teach my, my sisters um, Islamic stuff and um, in, 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 encourage them not to, to fall victim to the blind ways of Christianity. I, I was really against it, but... So, and I was the only person in my family that was actively working in any type of religious context and stuff. My mother wasn't going to church. My, none of my sisters, would do, you know, so whatever I did was the only influence that they had inside the household. Then I moved out to Arizona, and by some long story, God saved me and opened my eyes to the reality of his truths. And I remember um, sharing these truths with my family, letting them know that I had given my life to God. And them, knowing my history, knowing my background, knowing that, knowing my background, later on, all got saved. Specifically off of that, you know. And but that was, that for them, that was nothing short of a miracle that this is what Wayne is confessing. It was nothing short of that. So they, they understood my background. The reason blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, oh yeah, let me get back to it. Why is it, why specifically him? Why specifically the Holy Spirit? The reason blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the one that is unforgivable because the Holy Spirit is the one that opens your eyes to the beauty of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the one that convicts you. The Holy Spirit is the one 
that leads you to repentance. So if blasphemy of the Spirit is a rejection of the Spirit, then you will never open your eyes to, to, to the beauty of, of, of Jesus and everything that he's doing. You would never, ever see yourself as ratchet as you actually are. You won't. So there won't be a need for you to, to, to repent because you don't really believe you need to repent. That's why that particular blasphemy is the one that's unforgivable because it shuts the door. I got another quote. Like I said, I got a couple of them. I was doing some research, and it was like, man, some smart people were saying some good stuff. I'm like, well, I want these people to hear this good stuff. So I got a quote by D.A. Carson. It reads like this. The New Testament reveals how close one may come to the kingdom, tasting, touching, perceiving, understanding, and it always shows that to come this far and reject the truth is unforgivable. So here it is. Jesus charges that those who perceive that his ministry is empowered by the Spirit, and then for whatever reason, whether spite, jealousy, or just plain arrogance, ascribe it to Satan, have put themselves beyond the pale of forgiveness. For them there is no forgiveness, and that is the verdict of the one who has authority to forgive sins. got another quote, Sam Storms. It reads like this. This was not a one-time momentary slip or inadvertent mistake in judgment, but a persistent, lifelong rebellion in the face of inescapable truth. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not a careless act, but a calloused attitude. Understand that? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, therefore, is not just unbelief, but unashamed unbelief that arises not from ignorance of what is true, but in defiance of what one knows beyond doubt to be true. It is not mere denial, but determined denial. Not mere rejection, but wanton, willful, wicked, wide-eyed rejection. So, Two questions come to mind in knowledge of what this particular sin is and its consequences. First one, is it possible to commit today? I sat in a meeting with a group of um, pastors just talking about this topic, and there were some people that said things like, well, this is not something that can be committed today, but I find that to be wrong. And the only way for this not to be something that can be committed today is that the Holy Spirit is not in existence today. Thus, in short, this sin is still possible today for one who has, without doubt, seen the work of the Spirit and yet hardens his heart towards it and continually rejects him. Question number two. Well then, have I committed it? got another quote. Sam Storms. Many Christians live in constant and paralyzing fear that they have committed the unpardonable sin. 
They are burned and broken and grieved and terrified that some sinful habit they cannot break or some recurring transgression they cannot avoid will forever exclude them from the presence of God. Their confidence is shattered and their assurance of salvation is all but lost. This is what I want to say to that. The gift of God to believers is eternal life. The Holy Spirit lives in them for eternity, freeing them and keeping them until the day of salvation. Thus, you cannot blaspheme the Holy Spirit that dwells inside of you because sanctification is the purpose of his dwelling inside of you. Also, this sin creates an unrepentant and unremorseful heart. Thus, a genuine concern of committing it means that you haven't because you wouldn't care if you did. So, most of the time when people hear this text, they missed out on how drenched it is with forgiveness. Man, Jesus laid it down when he started talking about what you can be forgiven for. He was like, man, all, all, all sins can be forgiven. I mean, I don't care if you blaspheme me, you can be, you can be forgiven. This is the one that you can't be forgiven. And this is our thing. What we hear is, what? There's one thing that I can't do? And we go look into that, and it eclipses everything else. What is this possible sin that I can't commit? Otherwise, I won't be forgiven. So remember this. We're building a sandwich here. We laid the bread. That's the meat. We're letting the juice get over the bread. Remember, the meat gives context to the bread. So let's lay the last layer of bread. Verses 31 to 35. And his mother and his brother came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brother are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So we're back to the crowd and the family. Notice the difference in the posture of the crowd, though. Before, the crowd was, was bombarding them so much that there wasn't any room to even eat, but now they're sitting and listening. Here... Jesus reveals that there is a level of family that's deeper than flesh and blood, one rooted in and led by the Spirit in and of himself. So he identifies his true family members by how they live because how they live bears witness of who's living inside of them. You see? It's impossible to consciously do the will of God without having a relationship with God and to understand what his will is and to respond to it. This is why it's a big deal. This is why he takes the time and he's, he's, he's talking to the Pharisees, showing them the, the stupidity of their logic, and then turns around and says, listen, here's the real story here. You're actually rejecting the work of the Spirit of God. That makes me and you not fam. And he says that 
the thing, the line, the thread that holds every single thing together is the Spirit of God. But in order to understand them, you have to have a relationship with them. You have to know his voice. When my kids was little, they, I remember they used to go to daycare, and I would go to pick them up, and it was this big wall, right? But a side of the wall was kids doing all manner of craziness. So you just step back on the wall. But then I would go in, and I would just turn around, and I would be like, all right, time to go. And my kids, the ones who knew my voice, would turn their heads. Except Serenity, except one. But I knew she heard me because what she would do is play harder, right? So like, let me get that last bit in before he takes me and stuff. And I would have to go and grab her. Up. You know? Um, <laughs> but sometimes God got to come in and grab us too, right? Because we like hear his voice and ignore it. See, his family would not have thought that he was crazy if they understood the will of God. They're like, man, he must be out of his mind. But if they understood the will of God, they were like, man, he's going hard on what dad is saying. Understanding the will of God comes through submitting to the spirit of God. And the scribes were rejecting the work and the evidence of the spirit of God. Thus, had no clue of the will of God. The band could come now. Mark makes this story, he builds this, this sandwich. And we think that the main story of the sandwich was blaspheming the Holy Spirit, but that's not even the main story of the sandwich. This whole story was Mark exposing that true family is exposing what true family is and showing how outside of the will of God is nothing but confusion. Regardless of your friend, family, or four, in this case, crowd, family, or scribes. You see a chaotic crowd making it impossible to even eat. You see accusations of demonic influence from the scribes. You see a frustrated and confused attempts of Jesus' family trying to help him. Then you see a crowd that no longer is chaotic, but peacefully sitting and listening and surrendered to the will of God as Jesus taught. This is where true family starts. Where we slow down and realize that we're connected by something deeper than blood, by something eternal, but rather yet by someone eternal. The one eternal being without whom there is no salvation, the one who opens our eyes to see and accept Jesus for who he is. And you can tell who he is by how we respond to his love by doing his will. This is the application. For the application, I have two points here that I wanna, I wanna pack out. Application point number one. 
Our lives are knit together by the Spirit. He leads us in how we love, how we serve, and how we sacrifice. Listen, this is what we're called to. We're called to this deeper sense of family that's, that's bonded together by the Spirit of God. Living life together with one another, living life in relationship with one another is much more than just doing what you think sounds logical to do, even if you're trying to help. It has everything to do with following the leading of the Holy Spirit. Like when he puts that person on your mind, because he's trying to tell you you should call them, because they probably could use your words right now, or even your prayer. This is what it looks like. It's a bunch of people that are living lives together, bonded by the Spirit, in deep love, and this is what makes them family. People loving on one another, being there for one another. It, it impacts how, how we sacrifice of our time, led by the Spirit, not just because you looked at your time, you're like, I don't got the time, but the Spirit is saying, make the time. How we sacrifice of our gifts and our talents, of our resources, for the sake of what the, the work of the Spirit and what He's doing. How we love one another, something that's led by the Spirit of God. Application point number two. What I don't want you to do is this. Don't let this message, don't let this be a message that induces fear of blaspheming the spirit, but instead one that opens our eyes to the dangers of intentionally resisting the spirit and to therefore encourage us to be attentive and responsive to his works in our lives. We got to respond to that. We can't miss out on the little things that the Spirit of God is doing inside of our lives. Some of the little things that we just gloss over. We're like, no, 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 you got to respond to that. You got to see that. That's the Spirit of God doing His work. Don't turn a hardened heart to that. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we love you, and we thank you for the work that you do. Father, we thank you for your perfect plan of salvation. We thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for our sins, opening up that door that the Holy Spirit could actually come and live inside of us. Father, I pray that you would tell down hardness of hearts right now, Lord. That you will speak deeply to us, Lord. That you will draw us to you, draw us to your word, Lord, and that you will humble us, humble our hearts, and give us hearts that hunger and thirst after you. That we want to live lives that are a reflection of who you are, that are led by you. That our logic is surrendered to you. Our time, our resources is all surrendered to you, Holy Spirit. Do what you are trying to do. You know all things. Your word said that you search the heart of God and the mind of God and at the same time lives inside of us. Check.
chasten us, lead us, draw us, love us. Wrap your arms around us and keep us trusting in you. In Jesus' name, amen. This is how we're going to do communion. As you come to the table and you grab the, the cup and you grab the bread, grab this with this in heart and this in mind. You're breaking bread with family. With family that's been breaking bread throughout time. That while you're, you're stretching out your hand and grabbing that cup, grabbing that bread, think about everybody throughout time doing that exact same thing. And everyone in the future that will be doing that exact same thing. But let family mean something more to you. Something deeper. Something that's led by the Spirit of God. Let that impact how your own families run while you're at home. It's a couple of things I want you to think about as you grab your cup. First of all, for some of us, if you're listening to the drawing of the Holy Spirit, God is calling you to a time of prayer and repentance. To that end, there will be some people over here that will labor with you and spend time praying with you. If you're that person that thought that it was a part of his family but realized you've just been a part of the crowd, you've just been following wherever all the chaos was at, wherever all the commotion was at, wherever all the people was at, that's what you've been following, but there's no genuine concern for Jesus himself, just what he can do for you. Probably is that time. Or probably you're that person that, that thought they were a part of the family, but realizes that they're always on the outside of what Jesus is really doing. They're not connected to the work of God. They're just on the outside of it. So you hear about it through the grapevine, but you are not connected as part of it in and of yourself. And you realize knowing and following the will of the Father is the evidence that honestly, you have not been living as members of his family. Listen, hear what I'm saying here. We are family, but if you are not living and following the Spirit of God, you're not living like you're part of my family. You're like you're on your own tangent. Because we all follow in the same God, his same Spirit. No rogue soldiers here. Application or communion point number three. Something to think about. If you believe that you are constantly rejecting the Spirit's work, then you are not commanded to consider whether or not you have committed the eternal sin. You're commanded to repent, trust Christ, and humble yourself. If we're going to start truly responding to the Spirit, let us start by responding to His work of conviction. This response should lead us toward confession, repentance, and faith in the work of Christ, which is sufficient to cover any and all sins. So like I said, Father, you need some time for prayer. And there will be some people that are up here that are willing to labor with you in prayer. Those people are coming now. And to that end, the tables are open. Let's fellowship with our great King and worship Him.
This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com.